J.T. Cruel studied film and video production at Michigan State University prior to making the trek out to Los Angeles to make his mark. He was on his way to a Hollywood career working on TV shows like Seinfeld and movies like Eurotrip before a friend introduced him to someone at Marvel Comics. A lifelong fan of comic books and writing, J.T. Cruel quickly became an established comic book writer, working on titles for Marvel, DC, and Aspen, including X-Men Unlimited, Green Arrow, and Fathom. JT has expanded his writing repertoire recently with his debut novel called The Lost Spark, fulfilling another childhood dream. We talked to JT about the differences in working for a large versus smaller comic book publisher, writing distractions, and the process of writing a prose novel versus comic book scripts. All that and more on the Scripts and Scribes podcast right now. Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga, and today we're speaking with comic book writer and new author, uh, J.T. Krul. Thanks for joining us today, J.T. Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Well, I, thanks for taking the time, and I know your schedule's sort of been crazy with San Diego and all these cons, and I've been trying to get you on the podcast for a long time, so I do appreciate it. Um, now, I know you just got back from the Las Vegas con uh, with the whole Aspen crew, and you guys always seem like a family. I, I wanted to kind of say that at first. You're always hanging out, you and Frank and Peter and Mark and Eric and all those guys. Uh, although Vince got stuck back in Los Angeles, <laughs> from what I hear, stuck he holding had scripts, up. He had scripts to write, so you know it worked out that way. He's got a laptop, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now most people know know you as the writer of Captain Adam, Green Arrow, Soulfire, Fathom, Teen Titans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but what might not be as well known is that you studied film and video production at Michigan State. Yep. Um, you even worked on some television shows and films after college, including like Seinfeld and Eurotrip and stuff like that. Um, how and why did you make the transition from film and TV to comic books? Um, well, like, you know, I moved out here after college and like you said i got a job in production i was very fortunate to land a job as a, as a production assistant on seinfeld and so mm-hmm. uh and over the course of a couple of years i managed to move up the ranks to production coordinator as a production coordinator for the last season uh, and it was a, a, you know i mean it was everything you thought you would think it would be it was an amazing experience and mm-hmm. i'll never forget it and i worked with some great people and i learned a, an absolute ton uh, about just production and just working in, in television uh but once the show ended I had kind of a choice to make because the one the one drawback with working in production was that it left very little time for writing mm-hmm. for actual writing and so uh, after working twelve thirteen hour days six five six seven days a week it didn't really leave a lot of energy and a little didn't leave a lot of gas in the tank after that so right uh, so after the show ended I had a chance to either continue on as a coordinator on another project or uh, figure out something else and one of the executive producers of the show, David Mandel, was looking for an, a, an assistant for him because he was, had a development deal uh, with Disney Television. So I took a change of pace, and I went to work for him. And once I started working for him, I used all my free time to write. And I was writing spec drama scripts and spec screenplays and spec sitcoms, and you know, I'm trying to position myself to get a job in television. Uh, as far as the comic book angle, it, it just kind of happened. Uh, I, you know, obviously I, I grew up reading comic books. I, I, you know, I bought my first comic books when I was before I was even ten years old, and I, you know, collected heavily uh, all through high school. I actually, uh, I grew up in a small town called Hastings in Michigan, and I actually got a job at the local bookstore called Pages. And uh, me and the owner's son convinced uh, my own, the owner Sue Walker. We convinced him 
convinced her to turn half the store into a comic book store. This was right, and <laughs> this is right. This is right when Image was huge, and mm-hmm. you know, and uh, and actually, you know, it led into like Jim doing the the new X Men book, uh, and uh, and like the Legends of Dark Knight, and all the multiple covers and all sorts of. It was really right. the boon of when all that was going on. So this was like the late eighties. Uh, so I, I, you know, I've been and I've, you know, I read all through college, and it wasn't, you know, after college I quit reading for a bit because I just I didn't have any money, I couldn't afford to read it, read them. Uh, but uh, and then after, anyway, being out here, uh, a friend of mine had a a contact at Marvel. Um, this guy named uh, Josh Ryan. Uh, he was kind of a liaison for Marvel at the time, looking for new writers uh, in the in the in Hollywood in the entertainment field. Mm-hmm. And my friend worked in uh, animation at the time, and and he. You know, he would be in contact with him, and he would call me up and say, "Hey, they want me to pitch a, you know, a Deathlock story." You know, and but he he didn't read comics at all, so he had no idea who any of these characters were. So, but he knew <laughs> I did. So, so right. anytime they called him up, he would call me up and just say, "Well, what's this character about?" And I said, "Oh, he's great. You know, he's you know, he's a mercenary and he's a cyborg and he's you know." And I just kind of go off and tell him what I knew about whatever character they were looking for, mm-hmm. which was a lot because I <laughs> I grew up reading all the stuff, and and I just asked him, my friend one time if he wouldn't mind putting me in touch with, with Josh because my friend wasn't really into it and he just wasn't his wheelhouse. He wasn't, he was right. going to kind of pass on it. And Josh was very nice enough to, uh, to talk to me and, and I just started uh, submitting scripts. So I would write, uh, there were 11, they were looking for anthology scripts for the relaunching their unlimited line. And mm-hmm. I just wrote 11 page uh, stories. And I wrote, uh, I wrote, I wrote what the first story I wrote, what was ended up being the Halloween issue in X-Men unlimited number one. Uh, so I wrote that one, but before that got picked up, I wrote like four other X-Men ones. I wrote an Avengers one. Uh, I think I wrote a, I think I wrote a, a Hulk one and, and they bought, they bought the, uh, they bought the X-Men one. Mm-hmm. And right when that, uh, right when they bought that and I was, I was doing revisions on it, then they asked me if I wanted to do one for Spider-Man cause they were doing Spider-Man Unlimited as well. And so I wrote one for that. And so my first two published works actually came from Marvel comics, uh, back in the day. Hmm. And and then from there, I write one. It just worked out right when those came out. Uh, literally, like the month that the X Men Limited was published, uh, the story was published. I uh, I got I met up with uh, with Frank and Peter and Mike at Aspen with Mike Turner, Frank Mastermar, and Peter Steigerwald. Uh, and uh, I was able to show them a comic book from Marvel Comics that was an issue number one and sold like sixty some thousand copies. So right. you know it definitely helped. And Jay Lee did a cover for it. So it was you know it was, I, was, I was I was I was I was very lucky. Uh, and, uh, so I, um, they, they were looking for someone to help them out with, uh, a Fathom miniseries, the Dawn of War miniseries. And so I started working with them. And then within, within six months, I was doing the new Fathom volume. I was doing the Cannon Hawk spinoff miniseries from that. I, then I, they asked me to come on board Soulfire and help out with that. And then I was doing, uh, a, a Dying of the Dying of the Light miniseries. So within six months of starting, uh, to know the Aspen guys, I was all of a sudden doing like four books over this of this monthly <laughs> period so um it was really you know it really i was very fortunate you know all of the you know in, in any business especially this one like you know, luck plays a big part of it and i was just you know the things kind of fell into place at the right time that allowed me to you know have these opportunities to kind of showcase what i can do right right well i mean luck plays a, a part for sure but at the same time you were prepared and you did a lot of hard work it sounds like you wrote a number of scripts before before marvel picked one um, so I, I think that's, that's, should not be discounted. 
No, uh, no, but it's, it's like, you know, it, 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 it is it, absolutely. I mean, you know, you have to, you know, you have to put the time in and the effort in and sure. you just kind of, you know, you have to, you know, you work as hard as you can and, and, and pursue all the avenues you can possibly pursue because, yeah. you know, the, 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 the great thing about comic writing or writing in general, whether it's Hollywood writing or entertainment writing or TV or film or, or comic book writing or book writing or whatever, uh, the, 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 the beauty of it is there's no one set path to get into it. But right. the drawback is there's no one set path. <laughs> right. to get into it, you know, so you don't know. You know. I remember being in college and I had friends of mine that were, you know, accounting majors. And I was so just jealous of them, not for what they were studying, but because when they were juniors in college, they all had job fairs where the firms came to the college sure. and they went to it and they interviewed with them and they got summer internships that they were, they got paid internships for between their junior and senior year. And then if the internships went well, they basically had a job lined up like before, you know, before they even finished, before they even started their last semester at school, they already had a job lined up waiting for them. Right. And for me, I was, you know, I graduated college and I kind of, you know, I, I moved around a little bit, did a couple of little jobs, some production jobs, video production in Michigan here. I sold radio advertisement. And then uh, I just, you know, I, I quit that and I, you know, sold everything I could sell. I actually sold the most, a lot of my comic book collection to make the money in order to move out to Los Angeles. Mm. I just kind of got in my car and drove across country. And, you know, it's like, and when I was fortunate enough to get the Seinfeld job, I was literally on my last, you know, my money was running out. Like I had about another week or two, I was going to be able to last. And then I was going to you know, either have to beg my parents for some money or, or you know, or, you know, quit and go back. Mm-hmm. Well, um, what's the old, what is the saying? Uh, success is where preparation meets luck. Like, yeah, that uh, yeah, it's uh yeah, uh, preparation and preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah, it's funny. I just I just gave that quote to somebody uh, somebody I know that was um, you know, it was uh, going for a new job and stuff. So <laughs> it, was, uh, it was kind of a, a little mantra I, I I gave to them. So yeah, I just I remember just hearing that one a while ago. But no, that's it. Now, do you feel that uh, your training and experience that you've had in film and TV translated to the comic book industry? At all? Yeah, I mean, in two main ways. I think that when you write, first of all, the script writing for comic books is mm-hmm. very comparable to a screenplay, mm-hmm. um, whether it's television or, or a television script. Uh, obviously, more geared towards drama television than, than, than sitcoms, but but the, the the format itself lends itself very easily to write comic books. Uh, not exactly. You do have to think. There's, there are definitely differences to it, but in terms of, like, there are some similarities to it. So I think and that that helps. And just studying story, you know, just working in, 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 in as you take a story and break it down and try to build it up and you outline it out. And I'm a big person for outlines. Like, I, you know, I, I break it down and I re-break it down and I break it down again and, you know, until you, you know, get it exactly where you want it to be before you start writing it. Um, and so I think that plays into it. And from a business standpoint, um, working in production, you get a sense of a the collaborative nature of of, of the business, and also the sense of deadlines and, and working under uh, you know st- not stressful situations, but you know I mean like time crunches. You know I mean there's sure. time sensitive situations. So um, you know you you may write your comic book in a bit of a vacuum when you're doing the actual writing, but you have editors you're working with, you have artists that you're working with, you have cover artists that you're maybe working with that might be different. You have inkers, you have colorists, you have letters, you know, you're going back and forth, you're doing notes, you're making sure that you're conveying the information as best you can to, you know, to your art team and, 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 and also to your editor when you're pitching your stories and trying to get your stories done. So, you know, that, 
there is that 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 aspect also played a lot into it. I think. I mean, any job that you that you have to work in in tandem with other people in such a collaborative nature, especially when you're doing something creative, where you you can only do so much, and then at a certain point you have to just kind of, you know, it's like a director. A director can only do so much. Eventually, the actors have to say their lines. You know, right. They have to they have to do it. You know. Um, you know, the you know the, you have to rely on people for what they do best. The director has to rely on the DP to make sure it looks good. You know, the has to rely on the, the editor to make sure it's you know that, that it's edited well. The sound mixer to make sure it sounds great. You know, all these, you know, all these sort of things that you have to kind of you have to trust people and and and, and allow them to kind of allow them to do their their specialty. You know, it's like you're not doing yourself any favors if you micromanage and and really dictate everything to your artists. You know, you want to give them space to to play because otherwise you're not going to take full advantage of what they bring to the table and and almost more importantly they're not going to want to work on the project because it's going to bore them to tears they're going to feel like they're just you know they're going to feel like they're a monkey with a pencil in their hand so right. you know the, the more room that you can give them the more that you can give them the room to do what they want while staying within the parameters of what you're looking for you know the better off the project's going to be mm-hmm. now you created uh minefield over at Aspen, uh, what was the development and pitch process like? Um, well, with Aspen, so Aspen was a little different because I've known them so long and mm-hmm. you have such a good relationship. So it, it was, it was, you know, the the pitch meeting was not as pressured as it would have been if I was going to another company, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, I definitely had it all. You know, I I had the whole story broken down. Um, they hated the first name of the project. Forced Empathy was the first name of the, oh. <laughs> my original working title uh, of the project, which I was going to uh, obscure, you know, and I had about mm-hmm. five obscure titles, and they hated all of them. Uh, and it, I'm, I think titles are the things I have the, the most problem with when it comes to, like, naming, like, the book. Like, I'm doing uh, something else now, and, and, and the, the title was giving me a headache for a long time, and I think we've settled on settled on something, but... Uh, but yeah, but Minefield came about uh, late in the day. I have uh, late in the game. I have uh, notebook pages filled with scribbles of words and phrases and, and titles and possible titles. But um, but as far as the pitch process went, the pitch process went. Um, it went it went very smooth. I mean, and, and again, that was a unique experience because you know obviously I'd been working with Mike and Frank and Peter and them for years at this point, and so you know they knew me very well, and it was kind of a very informal slash mm-hmm. formal pitch. But it started with a conversation. But then you know I built. I built the pitch together, though I had a, you know, I had a synopsis of what the the overall series was supposed to be, what the, what the world's like, what the, who the main characters were, what their deal is, what's going on with them, you know, what their what their story is, what their path is, what their journey will be, you know. So I had that all I had that all built out and had that all developed. So the document was like I don't know, like a a six or seven page document that they you know that they could kind of sink their teeth into and and uh, uh, but uh, you know and 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 they. You know, the way Aspen is, I mean, they definitely wanted input and they definitely had notes, but they also want me to be able to do my book. So mm-hmm. and they want me to be able to do it the way I want to do it because that's kind of one of the beauties of working with somebody like Aspen is they just kind of, they want to let you run with it. I mean, they definitely will have comments because they have an expertise in the field and they, you know, knows, know things that will work and won't work or things that will be problematic. And so I, you know, you're an idiot to not take, not to at least take notes to heart and seriously consider them. Um, so, but, uh, yeah, other than the title, the title was a, the title was a, the name of the book was a little, was, was a little bit of a process, but, but everything else kind of went, went, went smoothly. Now, speaking of the title, did you know, and this is doing my research, that Toto has a song called Cruel on their album Minefields? 
I did not know that. I yeah. did not know that they had a song named Cruel, and I did not know they had an album called Minefield. And now that you did. crazy. Yeah. There you go. Maybe that's where they got it from. You know, Frank was listening true. to Toto one day. He's like, you know what? This is perfect. Yep. Yeah. I don't, Sarah, that, that, I don't know. If that <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I don't think Michael's a big Toto fan. Uh, but but maybe. That's possible. But, uh, that's funny. No, I didn't know. I have to look that up now. Um, do, you, do you prefer creator-owned, working on creator-owned stuff or established stuff? Um, I mean, they're both fun. I, I, I don't know if anything's better than doing creator-owned stuff because mm-hmm. you're building a world from scratch. And I think you, it, it, it invariably is going to be a, a much deeper reflection of who you are as a writer because it's, everything's coming out of whole cloth from your mind. Um, but I also like working with established stuff because those are sure. just fun toys to play with and fun worlds to play in. Like, I honestly... You know, I wouldn't write superhero books if they weren't if they were creator owned. I I mean, partially because you know they have there's such iconic characters that have already been dealt with, but also just from a practical standpoint, you know, Marvel and DC kind of have their lock on superhero books. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's your it, and this is just my own personal view, but like I think you're starting at a disadvantage in the business if you're if you're trying to do a creator owned superhero book. Like I just I'm not saying that that they've done everything and that there's no new story out there. I just think from a practical standpoint to try to crack into the business with a creator book that's going to, you know, draw attention and it's a superhero book. I think it's really tricky. You know, I mean, you have your, you have your exceptions to the rules. Absolutely. You know, you have your, you know, Mark Wade and you have your invincibles, Robert Kirkman, but, um, you know, there, there are, um, you know, but I think, you know, I, for me, like, I, I don't think I would do a creator-owned superhero book. At least there's not a story. I would I would almost look to tell it with a – if I had a – you know, the, when I have superhero ideas, I kind of gear them towards existing characters. You know, that, mm-hmm. oh, this would be a cool story for Cyclops, or this would be a cool story for Batman, or this would be a cool story for Superman. But, you know, I don't I don't really think in a in – a, in a, I, I kind of because, – because they have the history there, so you think of them as almost as real people, and you're like, oh, like, what if this happened in their lives? Kind right. Of thing, as opposed to starting with the character and trying to build it all out. And like I said, you know – between the two companies, they've covered up a lot of the bases that mm-hmm. can be covered. So, um, but uh, but uh, but they're great worlds to play in, and 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 there's such a nostalgia factor to a certain extent because they're characters I grew up reading. You know, sure. and it's, it's, you know, I was a huge X-Men fan growing up. I read everything I could buy them. So, like the opportunity to have my first story be an X-Men book and 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 have Cyclops in the in the story, um, even though he wasn't centrally featured in the one that I actually wrote. One of the one of the other stories I pitched, he was centrally featured. Uh, but this one, he was actually he, he was featured in. And he's one of my favorite comic book characters of all times. Probably, probably my favorite comic book character of all time. From like, in terms of like growing up reading and c- characters that I connected with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to be able to have him be a character that I wrote for my first ever comic book story, I mean that's <laughs> that's pretty cool. Right. So, I mean, there's nothing there's nothing to sneeze at. No, absolutely, absolutely. I grew up reading the X Men as well. Um, now you've worked for Marvel, DC, Aspen. Can you maybe talk a little about the difference in working as a writer between the companies in terms of like workflow, editorial style, if there is a difference? Um, well, the Marvel, I went did a little bit with Marvel. So, um, and that was very straightforward. Uh, they didn't really have a lot of notes for stuff, but they were, it was an anthology book. So these were kind of, I wasn't tinkering with their big toys, so to speak. You know, I was kind of doing tales that weren't going to, change the status quo of it. it was more like mm-hmm. in, in the in the marvel world so you know the the notes were very minor when, when that goes you know yes in terms of aspen and dc the difference there i mean part of it one of the one of the main differences is just um uh 
you know, sense of uh, the sense of community in the sense that I live in Los Angeles and Aspen's in Los Angeles. So mm-hmm. when I want to talk about story, I can go and go to the Aspen studios and Frank and Peter and Mark and Vince and I can sit around and talk about it, you know, and it's, it's right. You can't, you, you know, technology is a wonderful, technology is a wonderful thing, but you can't, you can't beat that. You can't, you can't beat that type of interaction. So, um, uh, but I mean, I have it. I mean, it's not to say that I didn't have the back and forth with DC. It's just that they're, you know, 3000 miles away. And so we would see each other conventions. I've talked to my editors and we'd talk on the phone a lot and email back and forth, but it's just different. Um, and, and, you know, there is, there is that difference in that it, in Aspen, when I'm doing a soul fire story, you know, I have, I talk with, you know, Frank and Peter and they're the, you know, they're the decision makers. I mean, there's, their word is final. Like if they want something done then we do it and if not, then, then we don't. Right. Um, with DC, you know, there's a little more of a hierarchy there. You know, you, you have your editor you're working with and then you have, you know, like Rachel Gluckstrom was my editor on Captain Adam. And so we had our, you know, we had our back and forth and then, but then beyond that, behind the scenes, you know, Mike Marsh was the group editor. He was overseeing it. And, and above that, you know, you had, you know, uh, you had Bob Harris, the editor in chief, and you know, you know, then you have Dan and Jim, and, and to a certain extent, Jeff Johns. Like, you know, there's there's more people looking at it, and I think that, you know, it, it just, you know, it's just more opinions, and so it's just, you know, there's there's more chance for there to be tweaks and changes, just because you have more people looking at you, more points of view, kind of coming at it, which isn't a bad thing. I mean, it can get cumbersome at times when you know there's the the opinions conflict and you're like, well, <laughs> well, it's not my decision ultimately. And you, you know, you want to, you want to do what you want to do and you want to get your story in the way you want to get it in, but you also kind of have to play ball because again, at the end of the day, they're, they're characters. And, and it's the same thing with so far. I mean, there's, you know, if something came up with so far that I really want to do, I would only be able to push to a certain extent after, you know, at, the, at a certain point, it's like, well, no, these are, you know, this is our book. <laughs> we, you know, we put it out, we own the, we own the, we own the, the prop, the property. And we, this is, we don't want to do this or we want to do that. So. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just the changes come a little differently in D.C. because also, you know, Dan and Jim are doing a ton of other stuff, and so they may not look at, a, at, a, at an outline. They may not look at it until it gets to script, and all of a sudden something that might have been approved has to have some tweaks to it because, you know, they're finally getting a chance to take a look at it because they're, you know, inundated with so much stuff they have to go through. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little, a little bit about you your blog on your website cruelwords.com um there's a couple posts that i thought were pretty useful for uh writers and that we could maybe go over quickly um one of them was a post that you had called distractions can kill dot 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 your productivity um and and you said you listed a lot of things productivity killers um in that post uh and i know that I fall into that category. I'm sure majority of writers do. You battle distractions every time you sit down at the computer. Um, what sort of techniques do you use to stay focused and sort of in work mode and not get distracted by emails or television or music or whatever? Um, well, I don't work with the TV on because mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't humor myself and, and lie to myself thinking that if I sit in front of the TV with my computer on, then I'm going to get something. Done. <laughs> I used to do that. They're like, oh, I'm going to do notes, and I'd have my notebook out, and I'm I'm tinkering with the story, and I'm going to work it, I'm going to break it down, I'm going to do this, I'm just going to do general notes from starting a new project, and I would turn a hockey game on or turn a movie on, and it's like it just doesn't work, at least for me. I mean, I just right. I can't do it, you know. I just um, the internet's the biggest the biggest beast. I mean, the internet mm-hmm. is just, I mean, there's it's it's a distraction heaven. I mean, there's so many. There's just you know, and and you sometimes you go online with the best of intentions. You mm-hmm. go online because you have to email a script to an editor. And then, or you're researching something, legitimately researching something, and you need an image of, 
you know, uh, you know, I want an image of a of a of a of a mine shaft from in in Russia because right. I'm referencing this you know this 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 location in Siberia for a soul fire story, and you do it, and then all of a sudden you find a link to you know the latest James Bond trailer, and you're like all of a sudden you're watching the trailer for you know Skyfall the third time that you haven't seen it before because <laughs> it's really cool, you know, or you end up in you're watching you know I. I uh, you know, you're watching. I love John Stewart, so I'm watching like mm-hmm. some bit from The Daily Show that's not even from this year that I just never saw. That's just <laughs> funny and makes me laugh. Or, you know, a, a comedy bit with Louis C.K. or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it, it it's crazy. And then the Facebook and the Twitter stuff. You know, it's uh, it's it's just um, you you can lose days on a computer. So, um, I'm blanking on his name because I'm terrible with names at the time. But um. He wrote The Correctioners, and he wrote America Freedom, I think it was called, or just Freedom. He's an author, and I read an article that, uh, it was like a New Yorker article, and he actually has, in his computer, he got the Wi-Fi removed, and he took an Ethernet port, an Ethernet cord, snipped it, and he put glue on it and glued it into the <laughs> jack on his computer. So he literally can, has no way of being online while he works on his computer. And I wish I had that temerity to do that because uh, um, I don't have enough money to have a multiple computer where I can have one that's locked out and one that is. But, um, uh, you, you know, know the, the, you, you know, Josh Dysart, right? Yeah. He writes Harbinger. Yeah. Uh, he yeah. told me he actually has a program. I don't know what it is, but I need to find it. That actually you put in your computer and it locks you out of the internet for a set amount of time. Like you program it to lock you out from you know, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., and it locks you out. Like, you cannot get in unless you, like, enter a code or something like that. Yeah, I remember him talking about that. And uh, Steve really... Niles told me, because uh, he, he, he was <laughs> twittering about it, that he has something like that, where I think it's that you only have a certain allotment. So once oh. you use that allotment, like, you're booted offline. But then you can reboot it. You can reboot the program so you can get around it, but it's just it's another step. Sure. You know, and silly things, like, I took out – I took out websites out of my bookmarks at the top because I just found I would kept clicking there all the time. Right. Now I just go now I just go up to Google and type in the name and then Google to it. So it's not like I'm really doing anything. So, <laughs> um, but for me, it's like I find that if I can put myself in an environment and and I mean not having internet access is a big plus. But yeah. it's getting harder and harder because if I go to work at Starbucks, they've got free Wi-Fi. If I go sure. to the library, they've got free Wi-Fi. So it's there. So it is, it is, it is tricky. So you just gotta, you know, in the same sense, you have to have the will to sit your ass in the seat right. and just stay in front of the computer. You have to have the will to turn it off and to not go online and to not do that and to not, you know, not check your email every 20 minutes, not check your Facebook page every 20 minutes, not check your Twitter account, you know, not, not check right. the sports scores or, you know, or look for new trailers or see what, you know, uh, you know, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's like, you know, God love the sites like Newsarama and, uh, you know, CBR and, and all those, but, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, they're only going to be updating so much, and the story will still be there if you check it at the end of the day. Sure, so. sure. Um, and the second post that I thought stood out to me was one where you talk about breaking into comics, which is something that we've covered. I've spoken to a lot of comic creators, editors about, and and like we were talking about earlier, there's no one way in. But what you did say, I thought there was something that kind of hit to the heart of the matter that I thought was interesting. Uh, where you say comic book companies are never looking for new writers, but are always looking for new writers, which sounds like a contradiction, but it's it's not. And I think Vince Hernandez once told me something similar, that comic book editors all want the next great writer, but they don't want to read anything. Right. 
Um, well, they they don't have the time to read it. I sure. Mean, that's, the, that's, that's the one thing. And also, it's so hard to get your stuff read as a writer by right. a comic editor because it has to be published. And that's the big hurdle. It's it's kind of like the... Uh, you know the 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 you know the dichotomy in, in in Hollywood a little bit. When you know when you first when I first got out here, it was like you need you need an agent to get a job, but you need to have a job in order to get an agent. Mm-hmm. Like, well, that makes no sense. But that's a lot of it. That's how it worked for a lot of people. You know, sure. um, where you kind of get your own job, and then after that, then you know, then you can find representation because then they see potential in you. You know, right. Um, so you're right. I mean, they they you know they, they it is it is really hard as a writer to get to get seen, you know, so you have to, um, you have to publish stuff. You have to self publish it. You have to publish it to smaller publishers. I mean, you know, you know, Bendis did powers and torso and all that sort of stuff before he broke in it, you know, before he broke in at Marvel, you know I mean? I mean, it's mm-hmm. like everybody does, you know, uh, everybody's kind of got their, their thing. I mean, even though I got a couple of things published at Marvel it was really my Aspen work that really gave me a career and allowed me to get to know the guys at DC and, and, and all that and build a relationship there and report because I would see them at the shows and, you know, DC and, and Aspen, they were doing a lot of work together at the time. And, you know, so I got to know them that way and they just thought, wow, he's writing, you know, he's running half their library right now. Like maybe we should give him, maybe we should take a look at him. So right. I always have to give him and, you know, it, uh, you know, so, I mean, that, that 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 is it you know and and you know and it's the same thing it's it's a little similar for artists too like they're never looking for artists yet they're always looking for artists you know it's like they they you you need to you need to make you need to stand out you know and again that's also one of the reasons why I wouldn't do a superhero book because I don't think a superhero book really necessarily stands out because they're probably going to have seen something similar you know right. to what you're 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 presenting them you know it works from an artist standpoint you know if you can do like a you know, you can, you know, I mean, not to say that it's easy to get in the business by any stretch of the imagination, because it's not. It's very difficult. But it's a hell of a lot easier for an artist to get in than a writer, because an artist, like, you can draw a cool, kick-ass, three-page scene of, you know, Spider-Man fighting Juggernaut and tearing apart New York City, and they'll look at it, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 they can immediately see what you can do, you know, mm-hmm. they immediately see where you can, you know, what what they could do with you and whether where they could fit you in. Um, it's a trickier for a writer. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, you don't have that material necessarily. You don't have that material that you can show them unless you self-publish. Um, and even then, you're working at a disadvantage because you know if you're self-publishing, you're paying for it by yourself, and you can't afford to have you know Adam Hughes do your cover, you right? Or to get David Finch do your interiors. So you work with the best artists you can, but those are artists that you either you either can't pay much or you can't pay at all. And also, mm-hmm. those artists that you can't pay at all, they're going to have a day job most likely so they can only do one page a week as opposed to five pages a week so you got to be patient you got to find someone who's you know diligent like you are and and build that and it could take you you know 20 weeks to get a 20 page comic you know right. drawn and, and 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 whatnot you know and then and then you got to pay to get it printed and all that stuff and then you got to go to the conventions and get it out there you know um that's why i think web comics are great now because the the, the, the one thing that it's done is in in so many regards is it's made it it's been a little bit it's made it a lot easier to get your work seen. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's 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 like, you know, I, I believe this is the way this wor- this this story happened. If I remember correctly, is that this Always Sunny in Philadelphia was a skit show that the the actors just did mm-hmm. as a web series on their own, and Danny DeVito saw it and thought it was hilarious, and then he teamed up with them in order to develop into a TV show, and it became the show that's on FX. Right. Like, you know, they didn't, you know, they didn't go through the usual system. Like they just want, they had an idea, they had, they had stuff they wanted to do that they thought was funny and they just, they just did it, 
you know, um, and that's that's the thing you can do nowadays. I mean, the quality of the cameras you can get on stuff, or the, you know, and and again, the quality of the production value, the the web comics you can do, you know, the way you can get it out there and build some sort of a fan base, and and you know, you can do a Kickstarter program to even build, so you can have a little bit of a budget, so you can hire an artist and and God forbid, make a little money while you're trying to do yourself public, sure. you know. Um, now, in addition to your com- comic book work, I did I didn't want to. Uh, miss this part of it. I, I was actually pretty surprised and, and excited to hear that you've completed a new, a new novel. Uh, it's a young adult fantasy book called The Last Spark. The um, Lost Spark. I'm sorry? The Lost Spark. Lost Spark. There we go. Yeah. Uh, the Lost Spark. Um, what is the book about and when will it be released? Um, right now it's looking like it's going to be January. Mm-hmm. Uh, and The Lost Spark is is about... The whole premise of the story centers around the fact that when we were when we were kids, we all had that one special item or toy that was like our most prized possession. Whether it was like you know the the blanket that we slept with, or the action figure that we played with the most, our favorite mm-hmm. stuffed animal, or whatnot. Um, and the, the the kind of magical make believe that we can create with those when we're kids is actually something that ha- is, is is real. Um, and when we get older, unfortunately, we we lose these items and we lose connect, our connection with them. They get they get sold. They get at a garage sale. They get thrown away. We break them and they get thrown away. They just go missing. Um, and if we when we're older, if we can reconnect with those special uh, sparks, as I in the book they referred. That's why the title's called the Lost Spark. Is mm. I refer to them as, as sparks. If we can reconnect with those sparks, then we can actually reconnect recreate the magic that we used to do with them. So the story centers around a girl named Angie, a teenage girl named Angie, who's whose grandfather has literally lost his marbles. Uh, his marbles were his marble collection was his spark when he was younger. It was his special, his special, uh, his special spark. And uh, when they're taken from him by somebody, uh, he starts to lose his mind. And so it's up to her to try to track them down before he loses his mind forever. Um, but first, she has to reconnect with her spark that she's lost. So. Uh, it, 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 it's got a little bit of a Harry Potter vibe to it. There's a little bit of a fantastical element to it, a, a little bit of dealing with magic. Um, but the world itself is, is, is pretty much grounded in reality, so it's more like a, a world kind of underneath the world or kind of behind the scenes, if you will. Um, but and it's just, it's just a, an adventure tale with this girl trying to uh, kind of navigate through these new uncharted waters for her as she tries to kind of reconnect with her, her spark and she meets new people along the way and friends and enemies and uh, it's a. I've been working on it a long time. It's actually an idea that I, I I actually came up with and started jotting early notes down, like as far back as honestly as high school. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until about five, like about six years ago, I think, when I actually started writing it. Um, but with the comic book work and all the other stuff going on, like you know, I couldn't you know devote all my time to it, so it took me a lot longer to do. But uh, uh, I'm really happy about it. I'm I'm I. I, you know, I, you know, if you grew up reading comic books, you, you know, you always want to write comic books when you grew up, and I get to mm-hmm. do that. And but I also grew up reading books, and did, to to have my first novel come out and to, you know, just be able to hold it in my hand, you know, hopefully soon. And uh, it's, uh, I couldn't, you know, I'm I'm thrilled. Like it's just one of those things where it's, you know, it's like before I die, I wanted to write a book. You know, I right. just, so hopefully I won't mean I'll die next week, but you know, <laughs> hopefully I'll last a little longer. But um, it's just something I want to do. So I, you know. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback of it. I've had, you know, friends and colleagues look at it and uh, uh, working with an editor, Robert Dart, and uh, uh, the, uh, the covers by an artist named Jeff Herndon, who I've come to know pretty well over the last few years, an artist out of Denver that, I, that I've gotten to know. He's, he's a really fantastic illustrator and it has a bit of a different flair to it um, than, a, than, a, uh, than, than other stuff. Um, 
And um, yeah, and I've also had kids read it uh, that I know that were friends of my kids and stuff that, that read all the Harry Potter stuff. So I wanted to go right to the, you know, it's definitely it's definitely a young adult, but it, I liken it to Harry Potter because I think it 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 hopefully transcends like the age kind of group. Like I, I think that it's got something for everybody. There's characters of all ages in it, and and it's a it's a it's a really you know it's a really meaningful story to me, and I and I hope I hope people I hope people like it. Now, what was the writing process like for you, writing a prose novel as opposed to a comic book script? It was very long. <laughs> <laughs> it was very, it was very long. Um, you know, funny enough, the comic book writing actually kind of helped because in, a, in, in comic books, you know, you're, you're, you're laying up the setting in a clear and concise way for your writer. Like when you're describing a panel, they kind of lay in the, presenting the scene to them. And in a book, you're kind of doing the same thing. You want to use as few words as possible, but you want to really paint a picture of what, you're, what you envision. And so in that regard, it really, it really kind of translated pretty well. Um, it's very tedious. Once you get your draft done, mm-hmm. um, it's very tedious to start to go back through it. And it's really easy to get lost in it because there's so many words, and yeah. you can find yourself retinkering with it. And one of the things I actually when I talk to people about writing and, and I, I talk about book writing is, you know, at least for me, it's like I want to get done with my first draft and, you know, fast as possible you know it's like just keep motoring through it because what i used to do when i first started writing when i learned very quickly was not the way to do it was i would start writing and i would write like my first say i wrote my first two or three chapters and then the next day when i started writing my writing session i would go through those two chapters and tweak them and revise them kind of look them over and then write like another chapter and then the next day i would do the same thing well eventually i got to the point where i wasn't even reviewing i was doing nothing but reviewing what i've already written i would never get to the part where i was writing anymore mm-hmm. so i just i for the longest time i had the first 50 pages i kept tinkering and tinkering and tinkering and tinkering and i'm like this is stupid like i'm never getting i'm not getting anywhere mm-hmm. so i stopped doing that i never went back and i just wrote the whole thing out i just wrote all the way to the end and then and then stopped and then started going back and then that's when you kind of have to think about the book in terms of chunks and you just kind of start piecing through it and you break it down into the chapters and start you know, going through it in a more methodical sense, kind of the way you do in a, a comic strip where you'd start breaking down either each scene or, or focus on each page and just start, you know, really kind of evaluating it under a microscope and kind of seeing what's there. But, uh, right. Uh, but, and the, but the language is so much more important in a book because no one sees, no one sees anything of a finished comic script, script except for the dialogue pages. Mm-hmm. The book, you, you know, because the rest of it's just, you know, typos. I mean, you don't want typos in your script ever, but I mean, like, you know, bad grammar, typos, you know, fragments, you know, like splitting, you know, uh, you know, dangling participles. Like it doesn't matter like in a comic book script when you're describing a page to your artist because it's really just a letter to your artist so sure. you can convey the story. But when it comes to script, you know, every word's going to be on the page so you really got to, you know, you really got to focus on the, the nitty-gritty. Right, right. Now, um, The Lost Spark is going to be uh, published by Aspen, right? Mm-hmm. Now, um, I know a lot of indie authors are, are interested in, in publishing and, and what sort of promotions and marketing uh, do you guys have planned for the book? Well, look, we're going to go, it's, it's kind of like a two pronged attack uh-huh. um, because, because I wanted, because it's got kind of the, because my career has been in comic books and because sure. it's got kind of a crossover for the comic book market, we're actually going to premiere it through the diamond previews catalog. So it'll be available in the comic book shops. It'll also be available on Amazon and be able uh, be available um, as an ebook, but then the goal is then to work through di- with Diamond as the distributor to get to the book market in the same way that the trade publications are put into the bookstores. I see, um, which is kind of happening is kind of happening more. Uh, they actually 
they actually worked with it already to kind of step it up when Aspen did the Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter book, a graphic mm-hmm. novel. That was kind of their first one that was like a, it, even though it was graphic novel, like it was marketed as a book and they kind of, it was in the Diamond Previews catalog, but it was also in bookstores around the, you know, like Barnes and Nobles or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that respect, that's kind of like the prong that we're going for to get it out there. Um, and then I'll probably do like extensive signings, like in comic book shops. Again, I kind of want to give that its first kind of foray, but um, I will want to then venture out into the, especially kids bookstores that are, that are like in the Los Angeles area and whatnot. And then that is going to be another prong to it, is like to get it out into that type of environment because I do want to hit the kid market because I mean we all would love to think that kids are the comic book readers, but we all know that the most of the comic book readers are adults. So. Sure. <laughs> um, but I also look at it that there's a lot of comic book readers that come in with their kids and, you know, they have the Johnny DC stuff and they have the kids comics, the boom comics or whatnot, you know, um, there's definitely product there for, for kids to latch on to. That's age appropriate. And I'm hoping that this will kind of find their way to them as well. Right. Uh, but it's, it's hard, you know, it's tricky. It's, it's hard to get out there. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to make a dent, you know, even with an established company, you know, it's hard to kind of, you know, kind of make that splash, so to speak, and really, and get noticed. So, you know, a lot of it's going to be building through, you know, like I said, through the Amazon sales, through the ebook sales. We're going to do some promotions for it. You know, we're going to promote it as heavily as we can and all the, you know, all the sites I deal with and social networking and whatnot, you know, and, uh, um, you know, we just, we're going to hit it as hard as we can and hopefully it'll, hopefully it'll break through. Right. Cool. Um, now, before we started uh, talking uh, on the air, uh, you had mentioned 10 for 10. What is that? Yes, 10 for 10. Next year is Aspen's 10-year anniversary. Um, and what they're what we're doing is starting in February and running through November, uh, so for those 10 months, uh, Aspen's going to launch a new number one. There are going to be five returning properties uh, with new volumes, and there's going to be five brand-new properties launching. And each number one is going to be at a special reduced price of a dollar for the mm-hmm. first issue. And so uh, hopefully that'll help us ex- get exposed to more readers and, and just as a, as a very easy way for people to come in and kind of try the worlds of Aspen as a very low, a low price point. Um, so it's the push we're going to do all year. We're, we're going to have a ramped up convention schedule as we're, as we're kind of doing a tour. We're going to hit other shows that we haven't hit before. We're going to hit all the ones we have been hitting. Um, but it's really just it's, it's a way for Aspen to just – you know, try to make as big of a, a, a presence in that they can for the 10th anniversary of the, of the company. And uh, it's all going to also include uh, at San Diego, we're going to plan a, a big 10th anniversary party for all the fans and all the readers and people want to come out and kind of celebrate the, the company's 10th anniversary. So there's some really cool stuff coming up. Um, I actually have a, one of the new five projects is something that I'm, that I, that I'm creating. And uh, it's a, something different than what I've done. And it's a, it's a, um, it's, it's, it's a really cool project. So um, we're going to hopefully be announcing in the next few months, Aspen will be announcing all the projects. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, 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 the goal is to have the initiative itself all launched. So even though the, you know, the, the, the two books coming, the book coming in November, um, you know, might not, it's not going to have solicits for, you know, till the summer, but we're going to be announcing what that is, you know, in, in, in the short future. Now have all, 10 titles have been decided and everyone's prepared. Your guys are all working on it currently. Yeah. 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 All all the 10 projects have been decided and they're all, they're all being worked on right now. Oh, Um, excellent. Production hasn't started on all of them, but as far as like, you know, the outlines and everything, we know what they're going to be. We're getting ready to, I mean, like we're, I mean, Peter's working on right now is Peter Steigerwald. He does a lot of like the logo work and the design work, him and Mark Roslin. So um, they're building that stuff right now to, 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 for once we start announcing it. So, 
Um, I actually think they're going to announce in the next week or so, they're going to announce the first two books, the February and March books. So, um, cool. And then also, uh, it's the 10th anniversary for Aspen, but it's also the 15th anniversary next year for the Fathom book mm-hmm. uh, that Mike, Mike, Mike Turner's uh, first creation. Um, and so that's pretty special. And so it'll, right. be, it'll be cool. That That's going to also play a big part in the 10 for 10 as far as, uh, and as far as the 10th anniversary for the company. So, um, you know, it's a, the company has definitely had a, had its share of, uh, of, uh, trials and tribulations, if you will. Um, I mean, nothing bigger than obviously than, than, than Michael's passing, mm-hmm. but, uh, uh, but it's uh, you know it's a testament to Frank and and Frank and Peter to and, and Vince and Mark that they you know that they've been able to you know keep everything going and and, and really been putting out some really good stuff. I mean the, the stuff that's coming up is, some, is is really great and the stuff that's out right now you know the Soul Fire volume and the uh, Executive Assistant Assassins and and just you know a lot of the stuff that's that's out right now is just it's a it's a great company to work for and we we really put everything we can into everything we do. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Um. So the 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 five new titles, I'm I'm gonna pry you a little information out of you if I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they like, for example, they're they're new titles. Are they brand new characters that you guys have created, or are they possibly ancillary characters from the Aspen world that haven't been featured before? No, the the five the five five of them are brand new properties okay. that are not connected. They're not connected in any way to anything. Um, Aspen doesn't really do a lot of like the. Uh, the the crossover stuff. I mean, sure. you know, like in terms of like a Fathom book and a Keani book. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. No, no. Uh, one of the other five ones may be one of those type of books, maybe a character from uh, the books, but from one of the books, like again, their own series. But but five of them are brand new properties and brand new projects right. coming out. Yeah. Okay, cool. Brand new worlds. Brand new world. Excellent. We like to hear that. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is the last portion of the podcast. Um, it's a section we call rapid fire and it's just six. There's sort of either or questions. Um, okay. uh, the first one though has four choices. Um, better hockey player or how Gretzky or Lemieux. I mean, I, I, I have to go with Gretzky. Um, I think you would have a harder time in today's day and age mm-hmm. uh, because of the way the sport is, but you just can't, you know, you can't beat like the stuff he did. I mean, it's just like, I mean, he's called the great one for a reason. He broke just about every record there was, and some of them probably never be broken again. So, um, I, I would think that I would, I would say that it's Gretzky. Cool. Better captain, captain Adam or captain Kirk. Uh, wow. That's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> they bring so many different things to the table. Um, I'll go captain Adam just because he's my boy. There you go. Uh, better band collective soul or soul asylum. Um, uh, Soul Asylum. Okay. Better Kings, Los Angeles or Sacramento? That's easy, Los Angeles. <laughs> competition. There is no, there is no either or when it comes to a, a Kings question. The Los Angeles <laughs> for sure. Uh, better Banana Rama song, Venus or Cruel Summer? Uh, well, I got to go with Cruel Summer because of the personal, you know, connection to for it. Sure. So I'd say Cruel Summer. Yeah. And who would win in a fight? Uh, Kramer or Newman? Uh, Newman, because he's mean. Kramer's not mean. <laughs> the only way the only way that Kramer would win is if, if if Newman accidentally beat himself. So by going after Kramer and like you know fell down a flight of stairs or something. But no, I think Newman would probably win because he's 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 not a very nice guy. <laughs> um, well, that's all the time we have for now. Thanks for joining us today, JT. Um, Absolutely, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you can find JT on Twitter at JT Cruel. 
Um, that's K-R-U-L, or at his website, cruelwords.com. And please visit our website at scriptsandscribes.com for more information on all of our guests, archived podcasts, and lots of other great written interviews and information. Uh, and if you have questions on the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no at in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening.